This is Valley Views, our weekly conversation with influential and interesting folks from around the Wet Mountain Valley. Today is part two of our interview with Ron Thomason of High Mountain Hay Fever Bluegrass Festival and the Bluegrass Group Dry Branch Fire Squad. We're getting his recollections from the history of bluegrass music. So he is, in my book, the master of the mandolin, the lord of the lore, the earl of the eight string, and the guy who plays the Gibson. Ron, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you very much. What an introduction. <laughs> Say, last time we talked about a little bit about the early days uh, and your recollections of people like Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers. Uh, today I'd like to focus a little more on Dry Branch Fire Squad and your, some of your style, some of your influences. So let's talk a bit about Dry Branch Fire Squad. It's a favorite here in the Valley. It's been going for over 40 years. You said 1976 was when it began. What was your original vision for the group, and how was it to be different than other groups? Well, thanks for asking that. My original vision for the group was I'd gone through several years and really not been interested in playing music much. I mean, I'd, I'd go out and play on some recordings for people if they called me, and I'd, I'd go and sit in with bands. But after I left the Clinch Mountain Boys, I, I left because I didn't really like that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to do some other things in life, and mostly I wanted to work with horses. So a fellow that was lived uh, in the town nearby where my farm was in Ohio started a place and had a little bar, a little nightclub, and he wanted a band to play on Thursday nights. And so I said, okay, I'll put the band together and we'll just play on Thursday nights. Well, the second Thursday night, Bill Monroe came in <laughs> and uh, sat in with us, he and Kenny Baker. And uh, I think on the fourth Thursday night, uh, Ralph Stanley came in with uh, his probably the greatest band he ever had. He had Roy Lee Sanders and Curly Ray Klein and George Shuffler on bass. And uh, both of them kind of hired us to play their festivals. And next thing you knew, we were off and running. <laughs> I'd have probably named the band something easier, uh, but I was trying to think of a name nobody'd want. Uh, and uh, other than Dry Branch Fire Squad, the Mother's Weekend was the only thought I had. <laughs> well, I, I think you've chosen wisely, as it's uh, you've been around for a long time. Now, Dry Branch is uh, well known for featuring your storytelling. Was that part of the show from the beginning, or did that evolve over time? It evolved over time, but it had to evolve pretty quickly because we started out with four people that just wanted to play music. There was no MC, there was no leader, and we were pretty boring. We could really play. I mean, I've got a record we made uh, from, uh, I think, maybe the first month out of the gate, and I liked the music on it. But by that time, I tried to do a little MCing, and I thought, uh, we got to have something else. And I really remember uh, we were coming into the business about four or five years after the seldom scene had started. And the seldom scene had the greatest MC, and his name was John Duffy. And I thought, boy, if, it was just, if I could just have one day when I could entertain people like John Duffy, that would be the highlight of my life. I'm still shooting for it. <laughs> Oh, I, rem I remember seeing the seldom scene early on when uh, John Starling was part of the group and Duffy was still alive. And uh, it's, it, that group's evolved quite a bit, but, but Lou Reed's no slouch uh, as, a, as a singer himself. So uh, they've always had, uh, had a good thing going. 
I was talking to Lou just two weeks ago, and uh, they did a song that uh, the country gentleman had done when John was still in it. And Lou wasn't even conscious, I reminded he sang the exact same notes. <laughs> the exact same notes. That's how good he is. Hey, when you when when something's right, yeah, it, no it's kidding. right. So uh, let me ask you a bit about the uh, instrumentation. Uh, you're a fine guitar player. You play banjo a lot. But mandolin is your key instrument. What brought you to the mandolin out of all the possibilities in the bluegrass ensemble? Well, that's a great question, too. Uh, I really loved the mandolin the first time I heard it. Monroe was so good at playing rhythm, and uh, the staccato that he gave the notes, that it moved me so much that I thought I never could play it right. So I didn't uh, at first. I played other instruments. And then I heard and, and met and actually became pretty good friends with Frank Wakefield. Uh, he really loved to play Frisbee, and I was in the International Frisbee Association. <laughs> so we hung out some together, and I thought, you know, if Frank can do this, maybe I could, which was a bad way to think because I realized the more I learned, the more nobody could play like Frank. But I loved the instrument so much, and to this day, when I give a mandolin workshop, I say, you can do this if you love the sound of the instrument. That's the main thing. The dazzle of playing a lot of notes and stuff is just something you do for entertainment value, but playing nice notes and the right notes and leaving the empty spaces, that just, to this day, still thrills me. I'm with you. I wrote a song called The Spaces In Between, and that was the theme that... It, the space in between is what makes is what makes the whole thing. So, and Frank Wake, Wakefield, uh, known for the new Camptown Races, is one of his uh, his big big songs. In now, B flat. In, in, ooh, <laughs> oh, that, that sounds painful. Now, uh, your mandolin style to me is very aggressive. It's very percussive. Strongly recalling Bill Monroe. How do how do you see it? Well, I see it the same way. I, if I could play exactly like Monroe, I would do it. And uh, I, I don't know, well, I know that I can't do that for a simple reason. I can't sing. you got to do those same numbers in the same keys to do it the same way. And so what I try to do is I think similar to what Mike Compton and Ronnie McCurry do is since you're doing different songs and you're doing them in different keys, try to think like Monroe. And that's like saying, okay, if I were a physicist, I'd try to think <laughs> like Albert Einstein. Not going to happen, but I play notes that I love and, and I play notes that mean a lot to me and I'm very emotional about music. So it kind of comes out that way. Part of the sound, a big part of the sound, is the instrument. And your your mandolin is quite interesting. You play, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but a Gibson F5 Lloyd Lore, which is the holy grail of mandolins. Uh, it's not much of a stretch to say that Lloyd Lore to the mandolin is like uh, Antonio Stradivari to the violin. Uh, when you look up in Webster's Third and International Dictionary. The term acoustic engineer, there's a picture of Lloyd Lohr right next to the <laughs> definition. <laughs> he, he is the master of uh, everything that got done at Gibson, which made Gibson Instrument Company a really great company after Orville Gibson himself quit actually working on the instruments. And uh, he was so picky that Gibson let him go. 
He was the acoustic uh, uh, engineer professor at Northwestern University. But he was so picky that they were using all their good wood and they were using all their good stuff, and still he would reject the instruments. And mm-hmm. so as far as mandolins and guitars and uh, other instruments that came down the line for inspection when Lore was there, which was the years between the end of 1922 and the beginning of 1924, you can still find instruments coming down the line in 25, 26, and 27 that you can't tell a difference really between the lowers mm. because they really are lowers, but he had rejected them. Wow. So describe the, the feel and the tone of that special instrument. There's nothing like it. I, I wish I could. It, it truly is. It, really fine instruments make you play the way they're going to sound. And mine's a pretty good one. I mean, I'm really proud of it. There's a fellow out in D.C. that's been trying to trade me out of it for years and, and trading it, wants to trade me a July 9th, which is the same day Lore signed Bill Monroe, July 9th, 1923. <laughs> but mine was signed the same day he signed Joe Vowles and Frank Wakefield's t- <laughs> too, you know, and so... That wood's pretty darn good wood they used on on those days. Uh, and I'm not worthy of that instrument. You can name the people that are worthy of those instruments, but I'm very thankful that it's mine, and, and I try to do it justice. And i say one more thing about the way you match up with an instrument that that I believe is, is key to playing at all like Bill Monroe. Monroe was a strong man. He was a strong man up until he was uh, in his early 80s. He heated his home with wood he cut and split himself, and he plowed by mule, and uh, he, he laid in his own fence. And I've tried to do that all my life. I I got like about 18 or 20 chords split over there now for no good reason, just to be able to play the mandolin. <laughs> Let, let me ask, we're, I've got time for a couple more questions. Something you said last week, I didn't follow up on, but I should have, because uh, here at the radio station we play all kinds of music, including rock and roll, and you you uh, hooked up Bill Monroe and his style kind of leading in rock and roll. Would, would that, is that the, the backbeat? Is that is that the piece that you hear? Well, that's my philosophy, and that's, I, you know, it, it's gotten some... Uh, gravitas to it because I was the one that gave the keynote speech when they inducted Bill Monroe into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I I believe that. And and I would challenge people to challenge me on it because you can look at percussionists before Monroe and before bluegrass music and even the early bluegrass band. You can listen to the band with Flatt and Scruggs and Bill and Chubby Wise and there's just the, the... hint of the backbeat coming mm-hmm. in until that time all the great percussionists were downbeat percussionists and i would go as far as even guys like buddy rich surely gene krupa mousy alexander all those great percussionists that had wonderful hands and wonderful beats but once the, this backbeat that monroe came in that, that hit when your foot's in the air that quickly on the heels of that you got rock and roll and i would say that if you listen to rock and roll now it's all backbeat Mm -hmm. the backbeat is the attraction of it and and i think i mentioned this at the time people will will try to insult a drummer like uh 
Ringo Starr like he's not much of a percussionist and he doesn't have the great hands of say somebody that like Buddy Rich and of course Ringo Starr would say that's irrelevant the relevancy is how hard can I play the backbeat and and he can play it hard and he played it from the beginning and that and the Beatles jumped in fully formed with that backbeat and never changed it that must have been something uh at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That uh, that would be a day. Uh, let me ask one one other question. If you could assemble a band of any bluegrass players, living or dead, to kind of do that one single all-star gig, who would you choose and why? Oh, my gosh. That, what a great question. Somebody has been around it so long would have to have a big band like like me and I would have them because I can tell you that the ones I'm going to name could all play together and and the mandolin players uh, if I could start with them would be Bill Monroe and John Duffy who have entirely different styles of mandolin but who really liked each other and made constant jokes about each other <laughs> and 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 played great entertainment stuff on stage the guitar players would be Doc Watson and Jimmy Martin again God, I sound, I sound like I was prepared for this. Now, not, this is a fascinating thing uh, uh, because Martin would have the best rhythm and the best runs, and Doc would have the best melody playing. Mm-hmm. Although it'd be hard to count either Tony Rice and or uh, Norman Blake out mm-hmm. of that. Just like it's hard to count Wakefield and Bobby Osborne out of my mandolin part there. The banjo players would be... Earl Scruggs, Ralph Stanley, and Tony Triska. And mm. that's easy for me because they could all play like the other one and yet put something in that wasn't at all like the other ones. And and that would be that band. The fiddlers would be Kenny Baker and Curly Ray Klein. I got to play with both of them. In fact, both Baker and Klein are on Dry Branch Records. And uh, it's not because they done that they're on there because to me they're the definition of fiddle playing in bluegrass music and they also had entirely different styles to where ray could fiddle a note that anybody just even burped and and kenny could figure out a way to interpret different styles with that longbow style his and the bass players far and away would be george shuffler and tom gray you can give me all the other great bass players that ever played, and I'd still take those two because I don't think the other bluegrass bass players would be there without those two. Wow. I wish we could assemble all those folks. I believe we could fill the Jones Theater. And uh... Well, you had that. I was getting ready to go with the singers now. Oh, okay. Okay, okay and then I'll quit. Yeah. I would have Hazel Dickens, and I would have Lester Flatt and Monroe. I think that, that could hold the end of the singing down. That would hold it together, I believe. <laughs> Ron, thanks for stopping by, and uh, thanks for sharing your recollections of uh, the history of bluegrass, because you've been right in the heart of it, and uh, it's a passion for a lot of us, but we haven't had the opportunity to rub elbows with all of those folks, so uh, we appreciate that. Well, thank you, Gary, and thanks for making this so easy. And uh, I mentioned that there's a, a great mandolin player here in the Valley by the name of Joel Wolking, too. It's not too bad on that instrument. He is, he is. And uh, Drew Horton knows his and way. And Drew Horton's of, another they, one, yeah. That, there's a there's an amazing amount of uh, players in the Valley, and that's good. Uh, how about uh, coming back uh, when it gets closer to the festival time, which is in July, and we can talk a little more, more about that when it's uh, when it's close by. 
I'd love that, and I, w- I would say I get a lot more credit for that festival than I deserve. I, uh, I have people like you and everybody else that helps on the board. It's a working board, and it's I'm just so proud to be associated with it. So I will be here. You do book all the acts, and, you know, that kind of makes the festival. <laughs> so uh, we've been talking with Ron Thomason of High Mountain Hay Fever Bluegrass Festival and Dry Branch Fire Squad. We'll see you next time on Valley Views. You've been listening to Valley Views on KLZR 91.7 FM. Valley Views airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m. and 4 p.m. and again on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Send your ideas and comments to comments at klzr.org. Valley Views is produced by the volunteers of KLZR 91.7 FM. I'm walking on a rainbow with my feet on solid ground.